No. They should be warm. Yeah, you could. You definitely could. Uh, welcome to the last PJ Pod of 2021. Yay! So um, we're all gathered here to discuss 2021 and what a roller coaster year it's been for pharmacy. And I can't think of a better group of journalists to help you do that. Hardcore PJ listeners may remember your voices from previous episodes during the year, but just in case, could you quickly introduce yourselves? I'll go first. I'm Nigel, executive editor and regular PJ Pod presenter. I'm Julia, clinical and science editor, and I do exactly as my name suggests. I keep everyone up to date with all the latest science and research affecting UK pharmacists. Hi, I'm Corinne. I'm the RPS correspondent, which means I cover anything to do with the RPS. And I also cover pharmacist education and training, which, of course, has been undergoing massive changes this year. Hi there, I'm Ange. I'm Senior Editor for Research and Learning, and I've been covering social inequalities in pharmacy for the PJ Pod. I'm Carolyn. I cover pharmacy policy, which basically means trolling through dense policy documents to find snappy headlines. Which you do very well. And there's a few more familiar faces with us. Do you want to give us a cheer? That was Dawn and Graham, and they're really just here for the mince pies. Well, it's been a huge year for all aspects of pharmacy, but perhaps none more so than your beat, Julia. Vaccinations, treatments, variants, and all things COVID. Um, Yeah, I definitely know a lot more virology than I did before. I mean, obviously, it's been a tough, exhausting year for pharmacists, but searching for some positives to start off with, the one chink of light really has to have been the vaccination programme for COVID-19. Absolutely. If we think back to the beginning of 2021, we were in our third lockdown in the UK and the arrival of the Delta variant had sent cases skyrocketing. But the UK had just approved its first vaccine and there was hope that it was the beginning of the end for COVID. Fast forward to now and the majority of us have been double vaccinated, a massive effort that pharmacists have played an invaluable role in. A significant number have even had a third booster dose. And this is great, but some of the optimism is beginning to wear off as we stare into the abyss once again with the arrival of the Omicron variant. Let's begin with a full update on the new Omicron variant of coronavirus. The World Health Organization says it would have severe consequences for some parts of the world if it spreads. The WHO says the overall global risk related to the new variant is assessed as very high. Health ministers from the G7 group of rich countries have met... We're not yet sure how this variant's going to pan out, although arguably the UK is in a better position than many other countries due to the success of its vaccination campaign. We should know more later this month, but there are suggestions that Omicron has the potential to spread much faster and infect more people than the Delta variant, which is a huge advantage for the virus, but obviously not so great for us. So in terms of the stuff you've been working on this year, it's not all been about vaccines. Yes, I maintain a master list of the evidence of the effectiveness, or not, as is the case with quite a few, of various treatments against COVID. It currently has almost 70 treatments on there and is many, many pages long. The first thing to note is that we've continued to see some clever repurposing of existing drugs this year. For example, in April, the principal trial showed that the inhaled corticosteroid budesonide shortened recovery times. And so it became the first significant drug that could be used in COVID patients outside of hospital. 
We also had some repurposing of two rheumatoid arthritis drugs, the monoclonal antibodies or MABs, tocilizumab and cerilumab for the treatment of hospitalised patients. Has it all been about repurposing existing drugs or did we have any new ones this year? No, not at all. We've also had some exciting brand new drugs developed, especially for COVID. So in August, we had the first MAB cocktail developed for COVID, known as Ronaprieve, approved by the MHRA. So this treatment, which is given as an intravenous infusion, specifically targets the infamous spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and blocks it from entering cells. And another MAB treatment, this time a monotherapy called Citrovimab, was approved just the other week. The great thing about these particular treatments is that they appear to be particularly useful in people who aren't able to mount a sufficient immune response to the current vaccines we have. So they're licensed for use in older people and those who are immunocompromised or people with risk factors like obesity or diabetes. And what about all those claims ministers were making in, I think it was October, about game-changing antivirals? I'm pleased to announce that we have signed two landmark deals securing hundreds of thousands of doses of two new antivirals from Pfizer and from Merck Sharp Dome. These antivirals... Yeah, so that was the health minister, Sajid Javid. Many of you will probably remember the day that was announced. I missed my um, parents' evening Zoom slot that evening because <laughs> I got so engrossed in the press conference. <laughs> That's our features editor chipping in there. Thanks, Dawn. So the investigational antiviral molnupiravir was approved by the MHRA last month, making the UK the first country in the world to approve an oral antiviral for the treatment of COVID-19. So the UK government is very keen on this drug and has already ordered 480,000 doses and it's reportedly preparing to start handing them out this Christmas. Of course, we've got to be careful here. We've yet to see the full data published about this drug in a peer-reviewed journal. And last month, the developers, MSD and Ridgeback Biotherapeutics, released results that suggested the drug was not quite as effective as was first reported, with the risk of hospitalisation or death from COVID dropping from 50%, as seen as in the interim analysis, to more like 30% across the full patient group. So there's starting to be some doubts about whether this treatment is quite what it was initially cracked up to be. That's always the problem, isn't it, when you're relying on press releases from manufacturers. Eventually, the gremlins start coming out when the full results are published or they get actually viewed by other experts. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's made life quite difficult for us in general when we're reporting these things during the pandemic. Sometimes all you've got to go on is a press release on a drug company website. Also, the issue with antivirals is that they only really work if you take them shortly after experiencing symptoms. So whether they affect anything down the line is going to rely on how they are linked in with our testing regime in the real world. Beyond treatments for COVID, we can't really ignore the impact of the pandemic on all aspects of patient care generally. So we're going to be living with that for a long time yet, aren't we? Yes, and one of the sad things about Omicron is that it might delay a return to normal for the NHS. There have been some positive changes as well, though. So the shift away from warfarin to direct oral anticoagulants and the wider acceptance that not everything has to be done face to face. But by far the biggest and most lasting effect will be the impact of delays and mistreatment during the pandemic. The health service is going to be very busy for many years to come if it's going to get through that. And the workforce is already exhausted. Yes, indeed. I think we'll come back to that theme a bit later on in the podcast. What's on your radar for next year, Julia? 
Of course, adjusting all the existing vaccines for new COVID variants is going to dominate most of next year. And we might get a few new options, such as the protein-based vaccine from Novavax. And who knows, this time next year, we could be in the middle of our fifth booster campaign. Oh, God. It's looking increasingly likely. Finally, and separately to COVID, I think 2022 could be a really interesting year for genomics in the NHS. So we've now got lead and chief pharmacists appointed across the seven NHS Genomic Medicine Service Alliances in England. Pharmacogenomics is going to be an increasingly important focus of the pharmacist role, which is really exciting. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be covering that a lot next year. Thanks, Julia. That's okay. So next up, Carolyn. Hi, Nigel. So hit me with it. In your opinion, what was the most significant change in pharmacy policy this year? Probably the most significant change has to be, sadly, the number of community pharmacies that haven't survived the year in England. I was crunching the latest NHS figures in October and realized that England now has the lowest number of community pharmacies compared with any of the last six years. And it's likely to be the poorest areas that are most affected by this too. Earlier this year, when we looked into which pharmacies had closed, we found that four times as many were in the most deprived parts of England. God, that's awful. And that completely runs against the government's stated aim of mitigating health inequalities, particularly during a pandemic that has exacerbated them. Here's how former pharmacy minister Joe Churchill explained it at a parliamentary debate in March, a couple months after our investigation was published. We have seen more closures in deprived areas, as many people have said. However, importantly, there were more in deprived areas. So making sure that there are still more pharmacies in deprived areas is extremely important. Proportionally, the closures reflect the spread of pharmacies across England, with closures tending to be where they are clustered. That was the health minister's response, but of course, you took it up directly with the PM himself. I did. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Wait, we've got one last question from uh, Nigel Pratis from uh, Pharmaceutical Journey. Thank you, Prime Minister. When are you going to reimburse pharmacies for their additional costs during the pandemic? And how many pharmacies are you happy to see close before the government does anything about it? Well, Nigel, I don't want to see any pharmacies close. I think pharmacies provide a, a community pharmacies. Go, Nigel. Yeah, I was so glad I got that question in because Boris nearly missed me out after going to the BBC and ITV and then I was left right till the end and nearly walked out of the room. Well, you got him to commit to refunding community pharmacies COVID expenses in England, which did happen later on in the year but the community pharmacy sector hasn't seen any extra funding to help stop all these closures. It's a horrible trend that I predict will continue in 2022. Okay, well, you've started on a real downer, <laughs> Carolyn. <laughs> any good news this year? Yes, actually. We've really started to see pharmacists' independent prescribing skills be put to good use this year. The NHS in Wales has made leaps and bounds in its pharmacist independent prescriber service. This is a brilliant service that has been around in various pilot phases since 2016, providing free treatment for minor ailments from hay fever to athlete's foot and eye infections. But this year, the service has really found its feet with plans to almost triple the number of pharmacies providing it over the coming months taking it to over 90 pharmacies. And in Scotland, the number of consultations through the Pharmacy First Service, where pharmacists can prescribe for minor illnesses like UTIs, impetigo, and acne, hit the 2 million mark. And that's only been running since July 2020. The Chief Pharmaceutical Officer for Scotland, Alison Strath, told us that the government is looking to expand the service, potentially through a sore throat test and treat offering soon. 
But outside the pharmacy first service, already the role of pharmacists as prescribers has expanded in Scotland. In September, the government announced that pharmacists would be able to provide a three-month supply of desogestrel in a form of bridging contraception to patients to increase access to contraception. Is there any sign of an equivalent shift in England? Well, a couple new services started in English pharmacies this year, like the Discharge Medicine Service. That allows hospitals to refer some patients to community pharmacies after discharge to follow up on newly prescribed medicines, although this type of service has been available in Wales for years, but we won't go into that. Ah, the Welsh get there first again. There have been other efforts launched to try and make better use of the clinical skills in community pharmacy in England. A&E departments can now refer patients to some community pharmacies in England through the CPCS, and the Community Pharmacy Hypertension Case Finding Advanced Service came out of its pilot phase and into wider circulation on 1st of October. And it wouldn't be a complete rundown of pharmacy services in 2021 if I didn't mention one of the most important services of the year, a COVID vaccination service. I was wondering when you were going to mention that. <laughs> As of last month, there were nearly 1,500 pharmacy-led sites in England which have delivered over 15 million COVID vaccines and a few more sites in Wales and Scotland too. It's a huge achievement. Yeah, it is. And I think it's really changed the image of community pharmacy in the health service and the country, I think, as a whole. True, although they now have the booster campaign to deliver in double time, and pharmacy leaders are starting to say that although they're happy to help with this, there has to be some movement on workload and funding to make sure they have the capacity to deliver vaccinations alongside routine work. We've yet to see any changes on this front, though. Okay, so what about hospital pharmacists? We know they've been working harder than ever under the strain of the pandemic. Yes, but there is considerable anger over how ministers are planning to reward them for that incredible effort. Don't forget, many have been redeployed or involved in setting up new Nightingale hospitals or large-scale vaccination centres, or just coping with running services during a pandemic. And the planned 3% pay rise in England is not really reflective of that. It's been shambolic, the whole process. Um, and the 3%, whilst it is higher than the 1%, it falls short of the 12.5% claim that we had in. But I can tell you already that the members of the RCN, nurses and healthcare uh, support workers, are really, really angry uh, and upset at the indication um, that this pay award sends to them that they really aren't valued for what they do. That was the head of the Royal College of Nursing. They've really led the movement on this, but pharmacy unions are also saying that hospital pharmacists will be encouraged to join in any industrial action until the situation is resolved. Separately, we could also be looking at potential industrial action from Boots pharmacists over the multiples pay offered for this year. The PDA told me just yesterday this would be a first for Boots, but it could happen if pharmacists at the multiple reject a new improved offer from the company. Any more predictions for next year? Well, COVID permitting, we should see much more movement in the health service towards its target to become net zero on carbon dioxide emissions by 2040. What does that mean for pharmacists or medicines? Well, the two big areas to date are inhalers and anaesthetic gases. And some progress has been made. For instance, in September, we reported that the NHS in England had exceeded its target to reduce the use of desflurane to 10% by 2021-22. But on the inhaler front, there has been some controversy. Julia recently looked into this and found some targets in England for primary care networks to switch patients from metered dose inhalers to dry powder inhalers and soft mist inhalers are not being welcomed. 
That's right. Some of the experts I spoke to basically said that the incentives were ignoring a lot of important factors, including the whole life cycle of the inhaler and also the use of inhalers by patients, which can vary hugely. We've recently heard murmurs of patients potentially being switched under these incentives without there being a proper assessment carried out. So this is something we'll be keeping our eyes on in the new year as well. Although the incentives have been suspended until April 2022 to allow PCNs to focus on the vaccination campaign. So any more predictions, Carolyn? I don't need a crystal ball to predict some pretty major consolidation in the community pharmacy sector. Ah, yes. Lloyd's Pharmacy has just been sold to private equity firm Aurelius, and Boots Pharmacy has just been put up for sale, or there's rumors about it, after making quite a large loss in 2020. One big unknown is the new health secretary, Sajid Javid. He has been in office for over six months, and we've yet to see his big ideas for pharmacy filter through. He seems friendly though, right? He does seem friendly uh, to community pharmacy. He's said twice now that he's working on a pharmacy first style service for England. So that's been really well received by the sector. I predict we'll hear more about that next year as pressures on general practice come to a head. Although I don't think the service will be rolled out widely in 2022. Thanks, Carolyn. Thanks, Nigel. Right now, one of the areas we've covered a lot this year is workforce, and our resident expert in all things in this area is Corinne. Good to be here. Have you had a busy year? Of course, but I think we all have, haven't we? (laughs) None of us have been (laughs) on our laurels this year. Now, first up, we've got to talk about one of the major stories of the year, the claims that we're running out of pharmacists. Yes. Now, right at the start of the year, pharmacists were added to the Home Office's shortage occupation list. And during the year, we've been hearing from various sectors in pharmacy that they're finding it quite hard to recruit. Perhaps particularly community pharmacy owners in England and Scotland have been complaining about primary care attracting more pharmacists. Although I know some Twitter armchair experts are saying this is all a bit manufactured though, right? There is an argument that perhaps employers should uh, just be paying more or looking after their staff better and some point to the fact that this is only likely to be a temporary blip as pharmacy schools have upped their intake recently. But it is quite striking how all sectors are reporting these shortages, um, even primary care networks in some regions. We recently published the results of our annual salary and satisfaction survey. That showed three quarters of pharmacists said that lack of staff was hindering their job performance. I mean, three quarters is a pretty high figure, and it shows that there's high demand for all members of the pharmacy team at the moment. And a lack of staff has wider effects too, because someone's got to pick up all that extra work, haven't they? The same survey found that pharmacist stress is soaring. A quarter of all pharmacists said they were feeling very stressed. That's the highest number of very stressed pharmacists since this survey began in 2018. So any good news, Corinne? (laughs) Yes, I'm pleased to say. Pharmacies embarked on what could eventually be the biggest change in how future pharmacists are trained this year. It's been talked about for years, but in August, the foundation training year finally kicked off. This replaced the old pre-registration year, and although there's not been a huge amount of change at present, it will eventually mean that every pharmacy trainee will be ready to become an independent prescriber at the point of registration. It'll mean that new pharmacists can take on a fully clinical role straight away. Although we should point out that the changes are being implemented gradually, the GPHC is currently consulting on whether to do away with this two-year experience rule for becoming an independent prescriber. 
But um, by 2026, which will probably come faster than we think, we should see the first cohort of pharmacists who are qualified independent prescribers as they register. But what about those already in the workforce? Are they going to be left behind by all this? Hopefully not now. Um, It's something that people are very conscious of. GP pharmacists already have access to independent prescriber training and community pharmacists in Scotland and Wales can access it through schemes in those countries. England is a bit further behind, um, some might say as usual. But last month, NHS England promised around £16 million in extra funding to support the career development of community pharmacy teams in England. And we're also seeing more and more pharmacist consultants being approved by the RPS, which is great news. There were another 16 approved by the RPS this year, bringing us up to 35 altogether. And we should hopefully see even more in 2022. What predictions are you making for next year, Karim? I'd say they're less predictions and more, let's just see what happens. Ah, cop out. (laughs) Go on. First of all, the whole idea of pharmacy degree apprenticeships, I think that's likely to come to a head at some point in 2022. I've listened to arguments for and against the proposals and um, honestly, I still can't quite make up my mind. We should have a podcast on that juicy topic in the next month or two. Uh, Another controversial area is pharmacy supervision. The government's keen for change here to enable pharmacists to be freed up to do more clinical work. Plans are being worked on, we understand, with pharmacy employers, the RPS, Aptuk and others. But as yet, no one can tell us precisely what they're looking at. It could be all sorted out in 2022, but I won't hold my breath. It could well be that we'll still be talking about it in 2035. (laughs) That's a distinct possibility, yeah. Okay, thank you, Corinne. So finally, we've got the wonderful Angela Cam. Hi. I thought this was the year that a UK government commission report said that institutional racism didn't exist. Why on earth are we talking about this again? Well, that just shows how much denial there is about these issues existing. Um, It feels like in pharmacy, though, the conversation has changed a bit. Especially when you compare the conversations being had now compared to when we first started our PJ Mind the Gap campaign which aims to highlight social inequalities in pharmacy and push for meaningful change. I'd like to think we've had some effect. And what's your evidence for that? It's evident in the level of comfort and confidence people have in sharing their stories and in demanding change now. Racial discrimination in particular used to be such a contentious issue. Understandably, people used to be very hesitant about going on the record because of fear of judgment and reprisal. But now equity and equality are common themes at national pharmacy conferences and the subject of research where our findings are at times cited, often because for a while ours was the only pharmacy-specific data available. A really good example of that is the ethnicity pay gap survey that we do every year. Yes, and we showed once again this year a statistically significant pay gap for ethnic minority pharmacists compared to their white colleagues. But the heavy lifting required to bring about change should not be put solely on the shoulders of ethnic minority pharmacy professionals. It has to be a unified response from the whole profession and come from the top down. A really good example of this was in our recent podcast that Julia made looking at decolonizing the pharmacy degree. Yeah, the great thing about that podcast was being able to talk with a pharmacy student, Adana Antonia KK, who raised an issue with the teaching of the pharmacy degree at the University of Nottingham. For example, not including teaching on how skin conditions present in darker skin tones. Adana was listened to by her tutors and they then helped her kickstart a whole project to decolonise the degree. 
And Adana just happens to be one of our women to watch this year, right, And Yes, alongside 11 other amazing women. It's the second year we have published this list, and we never thought it would be received so well by the profession. And I'm right that you have some personal news to share, right? Yes, sadly, this will be my third and final PJ pod as I start a new role in January at Bart's Health NHS Trust. Yeah, I think we're all really going to miss you, Anne, but the work will still go on in your absence. And aside from a new job, what else do you predict happening next year? It's hard to predict where the next scandal is going to come from, Nigel, but you can guarantee there will be another one in 2022. Anyways, Mr. Praetis, what is your prediction for next you year? You say my name right. Praetis. Praetis. Praetis, sorry. Well, that we will continue to have some brilliant podcast episodes. That goes without saying. Obviously. No thanks to you. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to say thank you to everyone who's listening. That's it for today. We will be back in 2022 with all the latest intel about what's happening in pharmacy, the NHS and the world of medicines. From everyone here, bye. Goodbye. Bye bye. <laughs> you have been listening to the PJ Pod, brought to you by the team behind the Pharmaceutical Journal. Each episode takes a lot of research and time to prepare, and so we would like to thank you, our listeners, for supporting us this year. And particular thanks go to members of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, because without their support for our journalism, it would be impossible. Please do follow or subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to hear our latest episodes. And let us know what you think of them on social media using the hashtag PJPod.